You are listening to Living for the Cinema with Jeff Gershon. Welcome to our Living for the Cruise series. Over the past 40 years, since his breakout starring role in the 1983 comedy Risky Business, one of our most enduring movie stars has been Thomas Mapother IV, otherwise known as Tom Cruise. He has excelled in a variety of genres, but most recently mainly in action, and just last year he starred in the biggest hit of his career, Top Gun Maverick. Well, as a follow-up this year, we will see his return to the beloved Mission Impossible franchise, once again playing IMF agent Ethan Hunt. Over the next several months, I will be revisiting one notable Tom Cruise movie each month, and each from a different era of his career, culminating with the July 14th U.S. release of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, Part 1. The Firm which came out in 1993 and was directed by Sidney Pollack. It stars Tom Cruise, Gene Hackman, Gene Triplehorn, Wilfred Brimley, Ed Harris, Holly Hunter, Hal Holbrook, Terry Kinney, David Strathairn, Gary Busey, Paul Calderon, Stephen Hill, Tobin Bell, Jerry Harden, Sullivan Walker, Karina Lombard, Dean Norris, Barbara Garrick, and Paul Sorvino. Big cast. The genre would be legal conspiracy thriller. I want to start by telling you that Bendini, Lambert & Locke is a small firm, 41 lawyers and all. But I prefer to think of us as a family. And like most families, loyalty is what we value more than just about anything. Now, the letter you got from us was the only one sent out. Because you're the only one we want. We have faith that you're going to be with us for a long, long time, Mitch. Fact is... Nobody has ever left us. Nobody. Now, I'm not saying that it's his best film, nor his best performance, and that would probably be Magnolia or Born on the Fourth of July. But this is probably my personal favorite film starring the cruise missile, with the color money being a close second, previous episode. And it goes beyond Cruz himself. He is surrounded by a truly stacked cast led by Gene Hackman. Hackman is really good in this. And when you first meet him, it feels very much like your typical Hackman role around this time. The gruff, seasoned authority figure slash mentor who is there to intimidate our younger protagonist. What about you? What led you to law school? So far back, I don't think I can remember. Sure you can, counselor. I used to caddy for young lawyers often work on weekdays. And their wives. I looked at those long tan legs and just knew I had to be a lawyer. The wives had long tan legs too. Ellison, another martini, please. So we're not a couple of idealists. Heaven forbid. But that's not how his Avery is written, nor how he plays him. This guy's actually a lonely, lecherous sad sack who is more there to be a cautionary tale for Cruz's Mitch McDeer if he sticks it out with the firm for too long. It's honestly a different lane for late career Hackman, and he actually elicits some sympathy towards the end in those latter scenes with Gene Triplehorn, who plays Abby, Mitch's wife. It's sent you. I knew he was a closet idealist. He doesn't know I'm here. But I did do it for him. Abby, the girl, was a setup. 
on the beach. She was the setup. They do things like that. Just in case the usual inducements don't work. What's going to happen? What are they going to do to you? Whatever it is, they did it a long time ago. And speaking of Triple Horn, as she not only holds her own in some genuinely tricky scenes with Hackman, but she pretty much steals the movie from Cruz at times. Her character is actually more realistic and just as savvy as Mitch's. Go in tomorrow and start to copy files. I don't have a choice. Mitch? What are you saying? You'll be revealing clients' secrets. You'll be disbarred. You'll never be able to practice law again for the rest of your life. Everything you've worked for. They can't ask you to do that. They are not asking. Which is not to say that Cruz is bad in this movie. No, far from it. He's actually very fun and engaging to watch. We completely buy his brashness and naivete. It's actually a more beaten down version of most of the Maverick slash Daniel Caffey types that he'd been playing up until this point. There's more humility to this character, and he has more to play off of than those pass roles. And the folks he's playing off of? Wow. I mean, this Holly Hunter playing salt-of-the-earth quirky. Ever plug one of these in, only you forgot to put the water in? No. You know what happens? No. The lights go out. David Strathairn playing all bemused warmth as his big brother. Ed Harris going just full-on Scorsese-like thug. Gary Busey being all... Gary Busey-like. Hey, I've, I just, I've got some business. I, good, I have to go good, good. Here. I owed your brother my life. I run across some strange things in this job. Some things that would never spray paint on an overpass. Now, what can I do for you? Stephen Hill being all foreboding exposition. And of course, there's Brimley. The late, great Wilfred Brimley like we had never seen him before. As a menacing head of security for the firm. You've got nothing to be suspicious about. I get paid to be suspicious when I got nothing to be suspicious about. And you also have the late, great Hal Holbrook going all quietly sinister as the leading partner for the firm. And Mr. Jigsaw himself, that's right, Tobin Bell as yet another menacing figure, this one being an albino assassin. Of course, this was also adapted from the hugely popular best-selling novel of the same name from John Grisham, which I do actually remember reading not long before I actually saw the movie. And even though the crackling screenplay from David Rabe and Robert Town veers quite a bit from its source material in the third act, I actually think that it might be a bit of an improvement as we witness Tom's Mitch figure out a pretty novel way to free himself from the clutches of both the feds and the firm, even though it's surprisingly uncinematic on paper. And this is what you've been talking to the FBI about? You want us to let you turn our bills. What we charged you. I should say overcharged you. Over to the government. Yes, sir. Well, is that in any way? No, sir. It does not in any way waive your rights to full and complete confidentiality in any other area of the attorney-client relationship. I'm your lawyer, gentlemen. Whether I like it or not, I can't talk to the government about you even when I'm no longer your lawyer. Yeah, his whole solution focuses on overbilling and mail fraud. <laughs> and that's okay because we still get to see Cruz run in the climax. And this brings us to the categories. The first category, because this is part of the Living for the Cruise series, is the cruisiest moment. Tom Cruise, you see, has become such an otherworldly star to the point where many have often speculated as to whether he's in fact a real, living, breathing human being. So this would be the moment in this film which most brings this speculation to light. 
Coincidentally, this also happens to be the weakest scene in the film overall, though Cruz's strange behavior and or mannerisms are not completely to blame. Now, we're about 45 minutes in, and Mitch is off on his first trip to the Caymans to see a client with Hackman's Avery, now having a celebratory night out at a bar restaurant on the beach. And while Avery's dancing the light fantastic with a woman who's clearly not his wife, we see Mitch on the side rejecting an attractive young woman who apparently is friends with Avery's so-called date. Look... I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but this isn't going to happen. Did you tell my friend I went back to the condo? You don't know what you're missing. <sighs> Thanks anyway. So Mitch goes for a walk by himself along the beach just to get away. And he walks up to a couple apparently fighting. Well, actually, it looks as though there's a man striking the woman that he's with. And then the man scampers off into the night, leaving the woman shaken, sitting back on the sand, though not visibly hurt. And this apparently inspires the, quote, chivalrous side of Mitch, as he takes it upon himself to start tending to the strange woman's injury by sitting down, cupping her leg, and wrapping a cloth around it. Okay, okay. Granted, he does look like Tom Cruise, circa 93, so maybe I could buy that. Still weird, though. Can I look at this? You're not a doctor. Uh, no. no, but I've sprained a lot of, sprained a lot of ankles. You should, uh, you should ice this. You should also report that guy. And then this woman, played by the lovely model Karina Lombard, says a few things about the desire to be both rich and secure. And saying these things apparently triggers Mitch somewhat into lowering his guard, which then becomes her impetus for seducing him. Now, this dialogue exchange feels kind of off. And then watching Mitch just kind of dive literally headfirst into infidelity looks even more off. Now, since the 1990s, there's been this growing perception that even though he's always maintained that smile and charisma, and it's a rare occurrence when he appears to have believable chemistry on screen with any of his female co-stars. Well, let's just say that it's sequences like this one from which that perception grew. And I'll leave it at that. That brings me to the next category, which would be the best needle drop. This is the best song cue or piece of score used throughout the runtime of the film, because music is essential to film. Of course, I cannot not mention David Grusin's hummable, yet strangely non-orchestral score, at least for a thriller, which is mainly piano and some percussion. Just really great stuff as it manages to be flippant, tense, and romantic all at the same time. Grusin's score actually received a surprise Oscar nomination that year and remains one of the most underrated scores of the 1990s. I mean, this music kind of just takes you in off the bat. During the opening credits, as we see a montage of Mitch scrambling around at Harvard Law School while being courted by law firms from around the country. Even beyond this, though, there are two highlights of the score which really stand out for me. 
One is the breezy music that we hear over a montage roughly about 40 minutes in of both Mitch and Abby adapting to life in Memphis. Mitch working tirelessly at the firm, while Abby is working at her new job as a teacher and settling in at the new home which the firm actually leased for them. One noticeable aspect of all this, of course, is that you rarely see them together. This track is called Memphis Stump. The other highlight is likely the slowest portion of the score, yet no less engaging. It's a laid-back bluesy theme, which we hear when Mitch first visits his long-estranged older brother in prison, Ray, played beautifully by David Strathern. I mean, David Strathern is just so likable from the moment that you meet him, as he's just in full-on big brother mode, trying to be there for his younger brother, even though he's actually the one in prison. And we hear this theme repeated a few times more during the movie, whenever Ray reappears. The track is fittingly called Ray's Blues. The next category would be Wasted Talent. This is the most underutilized talent involved with the film. Now, upon release, even though this movie got generally good reviews, some did actually criticize it for being overstuffed with characters and probably a bit too long. And at 154 minutes, well, they might have had a point. (laughs) That said, there's probably only one character and performer who I think might be underutilized, and that would be Chicago's own stage and screen legend Terry Kinney. And just for perspective, Kinney was one of the founders of the famous Steppenwolf Theater, alongside John Malkovich in Chicago. Terry Kinney plays Lamar, the youngish married-with-kids lawyer who is apparently designated to help get Mitch situated. What are you doing? Dutch says you've been here since 6.30. I thought I'd jumpstart the bar exam work. Good. No associates ever failed the bar exam, you know. Come on, I'll show you a new office. Now, early on, Kinney has extensive screen time and several scenes with Mitch, and we even get some depth to his character during one key scene early on as we witness Lamar's very unsettled reaction to the untimely deaths of two of the firm's associates. But then roughly after the first hour or so, nothing. We really don't hear from this character again, which just kind of felt strange as there seemed to be a setup there for an evolving relationship between these two characters. Now, what I'm gathering is that some of the latter scenes were likely left on the cutting room floor as a result of the plot just getting denser and denser and so many characters. So one casualty of the scale of this movie seems to be the Lamar character and Kinney's strong performance up until that point. The next category is the trailer moment. This is the scener moment that best describes this movie. For me, the two scenes which stand out the most in this movie are both actually scenes where we witness Mitch get the screws put to him. They're both roughly around the halfway point of the movie, and they both pretty much lay out the plot for the remainder of this thriller, mainly by detailing exactly what Mitch is up against. The first one features Mitch and a secretive new figure meeting in Wintry, D.C. by the reflecting pool in front of the Lincoln Memorial. Now, he's in town for a tax seminar and has been covertly summoned to have a secret meeting with a representative from the FBI or the Justice Department, probably both. That representative is Denton Voiles clad in fedora and looking very sinister when Mitch finds him sitting on a bench and is played by the late, great Stephen Hill, 
who definitely felt like perfect casting at the time as he had a long-running role as the attorney general on the show Law & Order. Voyles just lays out everything for Mitch when it comes to the firm and all their dirty dealings. And one of the things I love about this scene is how it kind of feels like an homage to that super tense meeting with X, Donald Sutherland's X, in the middle of the movie JFK, previous episode. Albeit that this scene is significantly more low-key than that one. No lawyer has ever left your law firm alive. Two tried to leave, they were killed. Two were about to try, you know what happened. We have reason to believe that your house is bugged. Your phones are tapped, your office is wired. They may follow you, they may be here in Washington as we speak. Are you saying my life is I'm saying that your life as you know it is over. Your law firm is the sole legal representative of the Moraldo crime family in Chicago, known as the Mafia, the Mob. The next sequence of note occurs roughly 10 minutes later in the movie, and it involves Mitch being dispatched for a so-called debriefing by the firm's head of security, William DeVasher. Love that name. Played by the late, great Wilfred Brimley. What is presented to Mitch as a courtesy debriefing by the firm up front actually becomes something much more sinister. The FBI wouldn't come after you if they didn't figure they'd get to you. What do you suppose made him think that? I have no idea. Well... See, it's my job to have an idea about that. For example, they might know how important your young wife is to you. They might choose that. How? Avery says last Friday you took the afternoon off. He figures you might have been with another woman. Why would Avery How do you know you weren't followed? You could even call it full-on blackmail. You see, the firm has been surveilling him, even during that extremely compromising moment which he shared with that stranger on the beach back in the Caymans. And when Brimley's devasher presents him with the photographic evidence that they've collected, well, it's quite the moment. Here's your Abby, one day walking to the mailbox, anticipating the arrival of her red book, her sharper image catalog. What does she find instead? She finds heartache, Mitch. The death of love and trust. Imagine her one day opening that. Go ahead, take a look. Both scary and kind of funny, considering the actor who's delivering this information. Like I said previously, this is Brimley as we have never seen him before, making it all the more memorable. Not just screwing, Mitch. The kind of intimate acts, oral and whatnot. It could be particularly hard for a trusting young wife to forgive and impossible to forget. just the kind of stuff the FBI could use for coercion, Mitch. So you watch yourself. I'll do the best I can to protect you. And I know you'll do your best to protect the firm. Won't you, Mitch? And this brings me to the final category, which would be the MVP. This is the person or people who are most responsible for the success of this film. Even though this film has so many memorable performances and just strong production values across the board, including that score, the firm does have a compelling center of gravity which pulls it all together. And that would be the cruise missile. Aside from that previously mentioned awkward seduction scene and a comically misguided moment of his character doing cartwheels in the middle of a crowded Memphis street early on, don't ask. This is just a fantastic full-on movie star performance from Cruise, playing to all his strengths even highlighting some new ones, too. From minute one, all of the trademark stuff is there, including the brash smile, the modest pauses, and the go-for-broke body mannerisms to demonstrate whenever his character is excited. 
But beyond that, he also shows just how versatile and generous a performer that he can be. Not only holding his own in the acting chops department against a non-stop parade of veteran classic actors like Hackman, Holbrook, Sorvino, Ed Harris, but he knows when to let them cook and even take over a scene, enhancing his performance in the process. I mean, just look at a tense mini standoff between him and Harris as a prime example of this. The way these actors trade on each other's energy and then how Cruz caps it off with intense calm. How about you get down on your knees and kiss my ass for not indicting you as a co-conspirator right now, you chicken shit little Harvard cocksucker? I haven't done anything. You know it. Who gives a fuck? I'm a federal agent. You know what that means, you low-life motherfucker? You got no rights. Your life is mine. I could kick your teeth down your throat, yank them out your ass, or I'm not even violating your civil rights. You are Agent Wayne Terrence. Yeah, you're goddamn right I am. Maybe local cops can Yeah. Is this Wayne Terrence? Who is this? Is this Wayne Terrence? Yeah, this is Wayne Terrence. So is this. Sucker. I haven't done anything. You know it. Who gives a fuck? I'm a federal agent. You know what that means, you low-life motherfucker? You got no rights. Your life is mine. I can kick your teeth down your throat, yank them out your ass, or I'm not even violating your civil rights. Now, I think you ought to reconsider And adding to all this juicy stuff is what I think might be the actual on-screen debut of something special which would define Cruz's career for decades to come. We're talking about something which is likely among the top five most essential star mannerisms of the modern era. Right up there with Eastwood's squint, Harrison Ford's wagging finger, Arnold's breathy growl, Eddie Murphy's signature laugh. Yes, I'm referring to the Cruz run. Now, you could make a case that we first saw this appear on screen during the freeze-frame ending of previous episode, Days of Thunder. However, in that scene, in that moment, he's smiling. He's actually beaming during that run. No, what I'm talking about, his posture is perfectly upright. His arms are paced perfectly at his side, akin to mechanized oars on a fast-moving boat. And of course, he has a super serious look on his face, telling you that nothing will slow him down nor prevent him from reaching his destination. Now, the vaunted debut of this run occurs roughly 75 minutes into the movie when we watch Mitch run furiously after Abby, who is scrambled out of the house in a panic after he's told her the truth about the firm. Now, you could question the logic of why this run was actually necessary within this moment, but I'll actually defer to a couple of funny little YouTube videos examining that, which will be linked in the description of this episode. For raising his star wattage even a bit brighter with so much great movie all around him, Tom Cruise is the MVP. What did I say? Maybe it's what you didn't say. What I didn't say. What didn't I say? Thank you. Mr. Toller handed you a schedule that virtually guarantees you zero tax with zero risk. The basis of your stock would be the face amount of the installment note, but the stock would have no value. Even so, it's deducted and offsets income. You defer your tax in full, even though you have a bankable LC. Deferred to when? What do you care? Whenever it is, it's still the best interest-free loan you'll ever get. So the worst is... I pay my taxes much, much later? No. The worst thing is next year, they're going to close a loophole, change the regs, and if you haven't grabbed this proposal, you're going to feel like you are fucked with a dick big enough for an elephant to feel it. And my rating for the firm would be four and a half stars out of five. (laughs) Happy 30th anniversary to an enduringly rewatchable movie and one of the best thrillers of the 1990s. And if you're looking to watch the firm, it's currently streaming at DirecTV. 
And that ends another Closet Idealist review. Special shout out to my lovely wife, Marlene Gershon, for producing this podcast and to my lovely daughter, Ella Gershon, for assisting in the editing. Please like, subscribe, and share the Living for the Cinema podcast and follow and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. And join us next time for another review from Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema.